All right, welcome everyone. Enjoy the sound of my bowl. Take a moment to shift from thinking to feeling. Experience this moment of life quite fully. With all the sounds, all the feelings, notice how the body is doing. Notice any emotion that's present. Allow yourself to really arrive and just decide that for the time that we're here, you're in a bubble of non-distraction. The rest of your life will take care of itself. You just have to be here. So relaxing all overthinking, relaxing all worrying, and instead coming to a place of curiosity, and openness, and the attitude of finding joy in the simplest of things. For example, in your capacity to breathe. Take a nice deep breath.
and you can slowly open your eyes. All right, welcome everybody. What a nice, warm-hearted gathering. And uh, we have a lovely topic today, the, the beauty of agendalessness. And I want to give you a few examples of what I mean by agendalessness. I was traveling in Mexico, and uh, in the Airbnb I was staying in, they had a wall where travelers could write anything on the wall. It's like one of those free-for-all walls, you can write anything. I remember a quote that was written there by one traveler. It said, in traveling, it's when you lose your way that you discover yourself. In traveling, it's when you lose your way that you discover yourself or you meet yourself. Right? So it's often when we get off our pre-planned itinerary, those are the most memorable parts of the journey. I remember many years back, I'd taken a group to a place called Bodhgaya. Some of you know Bodhgaya. Bodhgaya is the place where the Buddha is said to have gotten enlightened. And we went to Bodhgaya and some of the surrounding places where there were historical and spiritual significance. And so we had a nine-day trip. And on one of the days, one of the pilgrims said to us that, uh, Nitya, <clears throat> not far from here is my home village. And uh, I would love to invite everybody on this tour to come to the home village and meet everyone there. Now, this was not part of our itinerary. We had not planned for this. However, he was so you know, genuine about it, so sincere about it. We said, all right, we will reduce our time somewhere else, and let's just try this. So he called and, called and told them we are coming. And we had one bus in which everyone, we were about, I think, close to 30 of us. And um, we went off the main road on a very bumpy road. And we were wondering, where are we going? What is this place? What are we doing? What are we getting ourselves into? And we get there, and the entire village is waiting for us. They put up a shamiana, which is an Indian kind of a hospitality tent. It's like often marriages take place in this. They put up an entire arrangement. They created an entire arrangement for us. And they were all there to welcome us. And when we got off the bus, they all invited us. They all gave us tea. And then they all made us you know, take, they served us lunch. And then they showed us around the village. And of course, part of the group were people from abroad. There was a person from Germany. There were people from Singapore, other parts of the world. And this person from Germany, he had never seen an Indian buffalo, water buffalo, so up close. <laughs> and they said, they said, that's not enough. Come and milk it. So they made him milk the water buffalo. <laughs> and so we spent about two, three hours there. And then before we left, they gave us another. And these are, they made some little, little delicacies for us. These are some Indian delicacies. They're not so easy to, you don't often get them in other restaurants and things. So it turned out that when we asked on the ninth day what were some of the highlights, for many of the people, that was actually the highlight, something that was not part of our original agenda. We decided to take a risk and try something different, and that became a highlight of the trip. So in traveling, it's often when we lose our way that we discover ourselves, we find ourselves. This has obviously got a lot of meaning. When I first began teaching, uh, this was in 2007 or so, 2006, I think, and I had a two-day, what I decided to call a joy shop. I still call it a joy shop. Instead of calling it a workshop, I said, let's call it a joy shop. And I was guided to take out an hour and a half where I had no fixed teaching for anyone. And in that hour and a half, I said, we've been sitting in indoors most of the time. I want you to just wander outside. Wander outside for the next hour. And then come back. And then share what was it like. And the only... Uh, slight kind of 
teaching I want to give you or intention I want, to, want you to have is whatever we were practicing here, we were practicing things like mindfulness and compassion and you know, kindness and those kind of things. Can you keep that attitude going even when you're on the bustling streets? And then do whatever you like. You can observe, if you want to talk to someone, you can talk to someone. You do whatever you like, but try to keep this attitude going in the busyness and then come back. And people came back and the last, last half an hour they told so many stories, all kind of amazing stories. Someone went and he decided to have an ice cream. And as he's having an ice cream, he sees some kids over there. He says, you know, why should I be the only one having the ice cream? He called the kids. Give them also ice cream. In India, when you give kids ice cream, they call all their friends. <laughs> they call all their friends. Next thing you know, he was giving ice cream to about 20 kids. <laughs> and they were all laughing and they were so happy. And that made his day and that made their day. Right? Somebody else went to a shop and he decided to compliment the shopkeeper how clean he keeps his shop. And the shopkeepers were like, wow, no one ever compliments me on this. They just take it for granted. <laughs> it takes a lot of work to keep my shop this clean. And they got into a beautiful conversation. So everyone had their own experiences. In fact, one of my best friends had come for that. And years later, he told me that of that two-day joy shop, that one hour, I will never forget. It touched my heart. Again, it was something where it was not very planned. It was pretty unstructured. It was not like I gave them a very clear thing. They just go and do whatever. If you want to sit, you can sit. If you want to walk, you can walk. So there's a real power and beauty in not being so tight, in being a little light, giving a little room for the unexpected to occur, magic to happen. So I want you to tune in and think of instances in your life where you have relaxed your expectations, you have released your strong agendas, and could be for many years back, could be recently. See what examples come to mind, what images come to mind. So go ahead, everyone take a minute and tune in at a time in your life and let's have a little storytelling for the group. All right, anyone who's feeling ready, tell us your name and share an example of an agenda-less experience. Shifted things within me, and I, I changed a lot of things. I took 
when my kid was born, I quit work. And like I have two other kids and I didn't quit work with them. So, it, but it was really was, it really was like if I don't make any changes now, I don't know, I don't want to have a fourth kid, right? <laughs> so basically, for me, it's been a period of being a genderless mm. for the last um, 20 months or so. Mm. And some of it has been a lot of recovery. Mm. And um, it's been a lot of rebirth. Like I, I can look at different parts of my life and be like, okay, you know, I felt good here, I felt good there, but this has been the most restored part of my life for a long time. Excellent. Let's all say welcome, Nadia. Welcome. Welcome, Nadia. welcome. Thank you for sharing that. Would anyone else like to share? <laughs> welcome, welcome. But, um, it happened so that um, I ran into some visa issues and I kind of, they just told me that I have to kind of get out of the country for a year. Wow. I was like, and, and I, I literally cried, <laughs> left work that day crying because I was yeah. like, oh my God, I felt like everything's coming down. Mm. Um, I had a place for myself, I was very happy, I kind of settled down at yeah. work and otherwise. Um, then the next thing I know, I'm planning my move back to shift back, shift back to India mm. and an option to go to Ireland, but I wanted to kind of spend some time with my parents. Mm. Um, so I was basically there from March 2016 all through um, late 2017, I guess. And I think um, that's one of the best one and a half years that I spent. Yeah. I would, the most memorable because it's been a very long time since I really stayed at home and yeah. spent time with my parents. Right. I left home when I was like 17 for studies and work. Mm. So never came back for more than like a couple of weeks mm. at a time. Mm. So a good mm. one and a half years where it kind of shifted everything, I know, get away from the kind of forcefully mm. made me get away from it. But and you, you seem to really relish that time. I love that ah. time and I'm so happy that I could spend that time with my parents after a huge gap. And did it also change your priorities in some way or your, did, did it give you some perspective? Yeah, it's more about, you know, uh, I think it taught me to let go. Uh, yeah. not, not everything is under my control. It's like yeah. planning everything around, like, okay, this is what's going to happen or next year, this is one of, you know, mm. that kind of planning was like, I'm like, okay, there's no point of planning. Things like <laughs> those surprises can really happen. Exactly. Which you don't have any control over. I didn't really yeah. have a way to continue staying here and I didn't mm. have a way out. So I just took it, but it was a good lesson. And I also, you know, that, um, you know, taught me not to be like, you know, be flexible in the plans that That's I have. True. And if yeah. it's something happening, it's for the best. I, when it happened, I was like, I thought, okay, this is the end of everything. Yeah, I but understand. then those two years were like really memorable. Tell everyone your name. Uh, oh, sorry. I'm Aishwarya. Welcome, Aishwarya. Yeah, Anybody else wants to share? So you've just come in. We're just sharing an experience in our life where we were not planning things very tightly. We were more relaxed about it. And we had a pretty amazing experience. So some people are sharing. Yeah, go ahead, Jan. A really quick one. Uh, two, three years ago, uh, I, I had my set spiritual practices, um, all different kinds of sadhana and everything. And I noticed a friend of mine suggesting a, a new spiritual guide right, and, uh, on, on Facebook 
was kind of curious. Like I was hit in my past. I thought it's coming. It was in a yoga studio the best decision Yeah. So share some of the things that because you've already been on a very profound spiritual path. And studying, he, you know, he's been studying some of the most ancient scriptures of India in, in, in a lot of depth and with a lot of intensity. So share with people what are some of the things that gave you, uh, yeah, were just helpful for you and supportive in your practice from, from meeting me. Um, I think uh, I have a tendency to, to intellectualize things. And I think uh, meeting Nitya, I, I realized that that is one way. And there are other ways as well. Sometimes it's best to let go of your usual way of doing things mm. and try out other things. Beautiful. Like Lovely. what we're doing right now. Um, and so it gave me perspective on alternative ways of uh, not just spirituality, just living life. Living life, beautiful. And, and mm. you don't have to uh, be like spiritual to have a happy life. And being <laughs> happy is not That's a good mutually exclusive with being spiritual. It's, it's actually one of the same. And um, it, it helped me bring um, knowledge to practical life mm-hmm. to a large extent. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I'm completely there, yeah. but I think there's definitely. That's beautiful. Welcome, Jayant. Excellent. I'm remembering uh, I met a friend of mine in. Uh, Ahmedabad, which is in India, and uh, she's, uh, she was running a very successful, very big pharmaceutical company, and she'd retired. And I'd met her about, I think I met her, I'd met her several times, I met her about two years after she'd retired, and I was staying at her place, and she told me something. She said that, Nitya, I've noticed a change in my conversations since I've retired. I said, what's the change? She said, when I was the CEO of this company, then every conversation had an agenda. Every conversation. It was a calculation, you know. What do I need from this person? What do these people need from me? Every single time. Because any time someone approached me, they wanted something. And so then I would calculate, is it worth my time to meet this person? Right? She said, the big thing that's changed now is, when I meet people, I just meet people. <laughs> I don't have a sense of what they can give me, what I can give them. I'm just there. I'm available. And I saw her interacting with her domestic staff. You know, in the US, you don't have much. But in India, almost every home has got, we've got domestic helpers. And she treats them just like family, you know. She allows her maid to get her kid along. The kid is playing around the house while the maid is cooking food. And she just treats them like family. One day, her, the maid's husband, he's a carpenter, and he cut his finger quite badly. So she rushed him to hospital, and she took care of him. So she saw a big change that came, in, came into her. She shifted from being this, you know, uh, important person in the company to just being a human being. And she said, I feel so relaxed. Right? The calculation is gone. I'm just present. I found that very meaningful. And I would even say that each one of us, we have an invisible antenna. It may, in some it's very developed, in some it's less developed, but we all have this antenna. 
where we can smell the agenda of other people. <laughs> we can. So on the street, when someone says, excuse me, you often say, what, excuse me? <laughs> so now, what is the excuse me? What's coming after the excuse me? So they want to either sell you something or give you something or convert you to their religion or whatever. <laughs> There's some, you can smell the agenda, right? And so, like for some of us, it's quite developed. We can, every time we're with someone, you can sense it. And for some people, it's not so developed. But we all have the antenna. And of course, some of us overdo it. So like we think everybody's got an agenda. Everyone's got an agenda. You know, we, we, sometimes, even when people come from good intention, we don't trust them. So again, that would also be not a very um, balanced uh, approach. So I remember one of the teachers, Jack Confield, he, I was seeing a documentary on a teacher called Nisargdad Maharaj. And it's a documentary, he's a non-dual teacher. And one statement of Jack Confield in that documentary, he said that never in my life have I met a person who wanted less from me. He just didn't want anything from me. He, never, he did not have any expectations at all from me. And for me, that was love. That he would just be with me and you could bask in his presence and he wanted absolutely nothing. He didn't want your respect, he didn't want your money, he didn't want your devotion. And he let you be the way you are. He didn't try to force you to become anything else. And he said that was actually very healing. There was a visitor, I used to be a monk, and there was a visitor who came to our monastery, very interesting man. I learned a lot from him actually, from, from somewhere in Germany he came. And uh, he told me about a Zen monk that he'd met. And what he said that this Zen monk, uh, he said he'd never met a better listener than the Zen monk. That you could just, you just felt like pouring out your heart when you were with him. You would just share everything in your heart. And he said there were two, no, so basically this, this went on for many weeks. He would come to him, he would talk, and he, he would just talk, and he would just feel so good afterwards. Then one day he asked him, how come you're such a good listener? What's your secret? So he told him two things. He said there are two things that I practice. Number one, I don't interrupt for any reason whatsoever. Even if I don't fully understand, it's all right. I don't have to mentally understand everything you're saying. So number one, I don't interrupt for any reason whatsoever. The second one's quite tough. He said, uh, I don't even nod my head. <laughs> have you noticed when you're listening, we're often in a continuous state of head nodding, head nodding, head nodding. And it's an, un it's an unconscious thing. But head nodding also means that when you don't agree, then your head will stop nodding. <laughs> and then the person is like, so now what did I say, right? So... He would have maintain eye contact and he'd show that he's interested, but he wouldn't continuously, impulsively, unconsciously nod his head. So I found that very fascinating. Two very unique ways of being a good listener. And again, agenda-lessness, right? So I mean, this is actually going... So very often, like I've noticed when people come and ask me a question or they're sharing something, then I can see a part of my mind saying, okay, what should I say? What will help them? And we go into this problem-solving mode. And it's good to just recognize that because most of the time people don't really want solutions. I mean, solutions are fine, but that's not the most important. The most important thing is they want to be accepted. They want to be, you're okay, it's fine, everything's going to work out. <laughs> like a healing presence. Like a healing presence. Here you have, I think, in, in New York only, I think it is, there's an organization called the Zen Peacemakers. And they, they practice something called engaged spirituality or engaged Buddhism. Engaged Buddhism is you don't just close your eyes and meditate in your room. You take your meditation out into the streets. So for example, they'll go to the inner city, in this city and other cities. And the first thing they do, they have three beautiful um, teachings. 
and we'll say these together. Let's say together. Not knowing. Not knowing. Bearing witness. Loving actions. So step one is not knowing. If you enter the inner city and you've got a 17-point program of how this has to be improved, people will say, get out of here. Who are you? <laughs> you have a 17. You don't even know us. And you come with your 17-point program. This is not the way you create trust. You don't walk in there with ready-made solutions. Right? So the first one is not knowing. That we don't know. We don't know what we can do for you. But we're here. We're here. We show up. Right? And then bearing witness involves things like listening. Noticing, observing, what is it like to live in this place? Observing, noticing, feeling what they're feeling, empathizing, tuning in. That's step two. And now from that comes the loving actions. And usually it is not what anyone expected. So when they went there, what they realized was, well, these people don't need to be taught meditation. <laughs> these people, the reason these youngsters are getting into gangs is they have no other way. So they set, up a, they set up a bakery where bread would be made, fresh bread would be made. And they got these inner city youth to come and make bread. And little by little, kids preferred leaving the gangs and coming and joining the bakery. The bakery became a way out for them. And they began to make enough money to get into some classes and learn things and get some skills. And then start moving out of the situation that they were in. Not knowing. What are the three again? Not knowing. Bearing witness and loving actions. And the Zen peacemaker, they say, if you start with loving actions, it all backfires. <laughs> so check in your life, where with all your good intentions, you come with all guns blazing and say, no, let me tell you what's going to help. And it doesn't help. In fact, it gets worse. And, you say, and you say, you're like, you know, I'm coming with such loving intention, you just completely reject me. Because you never tuned in. You never connected. You came up with the energy of what can we improve. It was too quick. All right? There are things to improve, but you can't start with that. You've got to start with connection. So I often say connection before correction. Connect before you correct. Right. Tune in. So again, that's again a very holding things lightly as opposed to tightly. It's again an example of agendalessness. There was someone, one of my friends was doing research on mindfulness. And uh, he said, can I interview you? So he, I said, all right. And he asked me to define mindfulness. And uh, the definition that came is an agenda-less presence. An agenda-less presence. So it's different from concentration, where you're kind of very focused on the task at hand. Concentration is important. It's useful. Uh, you can't be concentrated all the time, right? Actually, you can on advanced stage. You actually can do things with more concentration. Mindfulness is more open, spacious. It's actually welcoming everything. So agenda-less presence. You're present, and you don't have an agenda. So in other words, your peripheral vision opens up. You notice what's required in each moment. So you're more responsive as opposed to reactive. You get reactive when you have a strong agenda, isn't it? Then anything that seems to come in the middle of your agenda, then you want to push it away. That's called being reactive. And being responsive is about including. In facilitation, they have a lovely phrase. Please say with me. Honoring, honoring emergence. emergence. I love this phrase. So honoring emergence means if something has shown up, it needs to be, first of all, it's good that it showed up. And it needs to be acknowledged. It needs to be addressed. So for example, if in the room you have a very skeptical person, 
he's kind of not, he's not easily convinced, he's pushing back against everything you're saying. So honoring emergence would say, it's not a person, it's an energy. And this person just happens to be where it's concentrated. So don't, don't make enemies with the person. Somewhere in the group, consciously or unconsciously, there is a skeptical energy, and this person just happens to be the place where it's sprouting out. So instead of reacting against it, you honor emergence and say, okay, how can we address this? And you remain uh, receptive and responsive to that energy, as opposed to reactive to that energy. Because the moment you get reactive, it actually gets accentuated. And you welcome that as well. All right? And you welcome it open-heartedly. So welcome. Come on in. So this is called honoring emergence. And this is something that, this is how facilitation differs from, for example, teaching. Teaching you often have, you want to cover a certain few number of steps. You want to transmit something. But facilitation is about evoking the wisdom of the group. And so in facilitation, you have to uh, trust that the group wisdom knows its own way to come out. And it will not always follow your plan. <laughs> All right? That's too much control. So while you can have a broad sense of intention, you hold it lightly. In fact, that's the main difference between intention and expectation. Expectation is a desire held tight. Intention is a desire held light. So while intention is an agenda, it's a light agenda as opposed to a tight agenda. You see, so then you're, you're more receptive and you're more flexible, you're more free-flowing. So you can honor emergence. So I love that phrase, honoring emergence. Uh, do some of you here practice yoga? Yeah, some of you practice yoga. Exercise, I think many people here might be practicing exercise. And there may be other things in your life. So for example, in yoga, uh, you'll begin to notice if you do enough yoga that when I came in, I felt a certain way. And after an hour of yoga or half an hour of yoga, I feel quite different. I feel a little bit more supple. I feel more flexible. My body temperature may be a little bit up. I, my breath has gone deeper. I'm generally feeling calmer. So you came and you, maybe your thoughts were racing in the beginning, but after that you're feeling much more calm, more equilibrated. Same with meditation. You came, you were a little bit you know, all over the place. You sat down there. And then at the end of it, you feel more settled, more grounded. Meeting a friend, I think you had that experience. You're rushing to meet your friend, rushing, and you, you spent an hour or two, and you feel so good after meeting your friend. Why don't we do this more often? Why do we do it only once a month? We should meet every week. Because <laughs> you feel really good, right? Or even gatherings like this, right? So the way, one of the ways of describing this is you're going from incoherence to coherence. Incoherence is all over the place. And coherence has become more aligned, more streamlined. Clothes just out of the laundry are incoherent. <laughs> After ironing, they become very coherent. Once you put them nicely, neatly back, you stack them in your wardrobe, very coherent. So if you experience it enough times, you start, getting a, you start having faith that even though right now things are incoherent, they will not always be incoherent. There is an underlying order. Yeah. I think David Bohm called it implicit, implicit order, I think. Implicate? Implicit, I forget the Implicate, I think. Implicate order. That there's an order underlying, he's a physicist, there's an order underlying the seeming chaos of our universe. But you can't see it with your eyes. You've got to see it with the, what we call the third eye, <laughs> your wisdom eye. <laughs> You've got to sense it. So in facility, I'm giving the example because that's what I do. So in my work, I can see, I can, for example, see a group. You're a pretty coherent group, but there are some very incoherent groups. When you enter the room, you can just feel the incoherence. Some people don't want to be there. Some people are very keen to be there. Some people have got this agenda, that agenda. You can just sense the incoherence in the group. And then you've got to relax your own agendas. You've got to just show up. Because either they have their agenda, then you, have, you come with your agenda, there's going to be a total fight. <laughs> Everyone's going to be pulling in all directions. So 
you empty yourself. And you trust that out of this incoherence, some coherence is going to come. And it does come. And you do it enough number of times, and you start getting a lot of faith in this. You start trusting this. And you look beyond the surface, and you see behind the chaos, the clarity, again and again and again. Now you can use any word you like. You can call it trusting, you can call it confidence, you can call it surrender. We all have different words that we are fond of. So tune in, see what the thing that we are sharing here, what is it evoking in you? And if anybody wants to give an example or share something, then please do. Share your name and share what's coming. I'm getting reminded of the story my teacher told me, Ajahn Brahmavangso. It's a true story. Um, so this man gets a call from his doctor saying that uh, you came last week for your annual medical examination. And I'm sorry to say we have found uh, a growth. And we weren't sure, so we had a double checked. You have a very rare cancer. And um, so, please come and meet me. So, all right. He goes and meets the doctor. And the doctor says, we don't know how. It's spread a lot. And it's not looking good. So, he says, you know, doctor, just be frank with me. How much time do I have? He says, I don't think you've got more than six months to live. And this cancer, it's very rapid. It spreads very rapidly. It does not have a good prognosis. Prognosis is the word, right? What do you say? Prognosis? Right. So, um, he says, well, doctor, thank you for being honest. And he comes home and discusses with his family. And of course, they're all shocked and everything. But he makes a decision. He says, do I really want to spend the last six months of my life constantly visiting the hospital? He says, what's really important? And he decides that for, la for too many years, he's been not spending enough time with his family. He's been working, 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 like there's no tomorrow. And he decides enough is enough. We have to have some quality family time. So for the longest time, they've been planning and around the world I think cruise ship or some a cruise uh, what a cruise trip for the longest time, and uh, they said let's just do it. And he also decides that you know after him his business can't really his wife can't take care of it, so he decides to even sell his business. So, not the best price, but gets a decent price for selling his business at short notice, books the around the world tickets, and they're about to head off the next day, and the phone phone rings. And his doctor says, I don't know how to say this to you, but there's been a mix-up. <laughs> there was another person with your name in the laboratory, and they mixed up the reports. And actually, you're totally fine. <laughs> Nothing's wrong with you. And in countries like this happened in Australia, in countries like Australia, perhaps even US, you can sue a person for something like this. But he said, you know what, doctor? It doesn't matter. You're giving me the best gift of my life. <laughs> I, I have realized what, the, what was important. This was actually a gift for me. Because I would have just continued like this. So it's all right. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad I'm fine. But I'm going to go ahead and enjoy my trip with my family now. 
and you put the phone down. And so that's another example, right? Do we, do we have to wait for such <laughs> a crisis to come for ourselves to realize what's important? Or can we take a step back once in a while? It took a big shock like that for him to realize, oh, there are certain parts of my life that are completely out of balance. Right. But if he had taken even just a few minutes every day to just take stock of his life, the situation, what, what's important, what the priority was, perhaps it would not have waited right till the end. And of course, the story ends well for him. So he was able to <laughs> recalibrate and reset everything. So I like to say that you know every hour we should take at least ten seconds of agendalessness. Let's take ten seconds right now. And for practice, take ten more. So anywhere from a minute to 10, sec ten, 10 seconds to a minute. If you can take every hour, just step back, just be. It's all right. Just take a little, take a, take a breath. It's all right. Don't have to constantly be running from morning to evening. Take a little moment. And then every day, can we take out about an hour for ourselves? And whatever. You may like to exercise, you may like to read, you may like to take a walk, you may like to meditate. But just uh, it's not so heavily about getting somewhere else. Activities which invite you deeper into the now. Right? Those kinds of activities. Can you take out some time in the day? Manasvi likes to run, for example. I know that she's a runner. So that's for, the, for her, that could be a moment. It's like a meditation. You're running. Right. You're breathing. You're feeling whatever you're feeling. So we'll all have to, for someone who's art, I have a friend. She wakes up at 4 o'clock each morning. She's a teacher of art and design. And she helps students in India get into the top art schools. But she says, I wake up in the morning about 4, 4.30. And for about... 45 minutes to an hour, she just doodles. She doodles. And that's, that's her doodling for herself. That is not to impress anybody, that's not to create a portfolio, that's just her, that's her way of being. And it's fantastic, the, the, the doodles she makes are just stunning, it's unbelievable, the kind of artwork she does. Uh, you know, some of you are part of my online course, so you might have seen her doodles. So sometimes uh, I'm giving a, a video call, and in the call, she's doodling while she's listening. And when the call is over, she sends a message to all of us, look at what I created. <laughs> it's beautiful, right, what she does. And that's her way, right? So we all have to find our own way. So every day can we reconnect with that. Right. And like the Jews do, on the weekend, the Sabbath, they take an even deeper break. So on, the, on the, a few days or one or two days in the week, take an even deeper dive, slow down, right? And the Orthodox Jews will not even use technology. So, 10 seconds to a minute every hour, an hour or so every day, a day or so every week, a few days every month, maybe half a month to a month every year. <laughs> and now I've entered the phase where, some of you know this, I've decided to take a one-year sabbatical, <laughs> at least a year, because I've been teaching continuously for the last 10, 12 years, so now I think I deserve one year. And people say, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. <laughs> where are you going to go? I don't know. <laughs> Because that's a gender lesson, right? I'm not sure. But I know that if I, if I don't know, then it's going to be better than I expected. 
If I know, then it'll be more of the same. You see, then I've kind of, of course, you can have a light agenda, but don't make it so tight. Keep enough space for the unexpected. So that's probably going to open your mind. Some of you know this, this concept called Johari window. Johari window. You should know this. MBA, Mr. MBA. Yeah, it's been years. Yeah, so Johari window is a management concept. Yeah. So they say that there are, there are four quadrants. So one is what we know that we know. One is what we know that we don't know. Right? So for example, I know that I don't know all the subway routes of New York. I know what I know. I know how to, you know, I know how to put money on my metro card. Okay, I know that I know that, but I don't know all the subway routes of New York. But I know what I don't know. Then there are things I don't know that I know. <laughs> right? Which you can't tell because you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, for example, I may not know that I have a capacity to, for example, console a dying fr a friend who's just lost their father. I may not even know I have that capacity. But when I'm in that situation, I suddenly find, wow, I, I seem to be present for this person. So the thing that we know that we don't even know that we know. But the most interesting one is what we don't know that we don't know. <laughs> now that, and that's supposed to be the biggest of them all, right? What we don't know what we don't know, and that's the vast majority of the universe. In fact, the honest scientists have admitted that is, they currently know no more than 4%. Some people say even 2% of the universe. Everything else is dark matter and dark energy. So that's how big the leading scientists say what we don't know that we don't know. Someone said it nicely in a recent documentary. They said, about dark matter, we don't know. And about dark energy, it's even less than, even less than don't know. <laughs> like nothing. <laughs> so that's where the magic is. That's where the, you know, that's where the freshness is going to come from. So curiosity and wonder and willingness to look at things afresh. So let's listen to that. Go ahead, Anishai. One, one story just sort of reminded me of yeah. in terms of just resilience and you don't know how resilient you are. And every time, you know, times get tough, I get reminded of the story. It's, I think there was this hacker in the early 80s or 90s and he, I forget what the term is because I read this article a while ago, six months solitary confinement, but 10 by six foot cell, pure darkness, one hour of light every day. And what seemed to be insurmountable and he thought he was going to die, within a week he had this beautiful pattern that he developed where he would go for a walk in the forest at a certain time. He built this mental pattern, he'd be exercising, it was all in his head because wow. he couldn't do much in 10 by 6 foot. And the months went by and you know, month 2, month 3 into month 6, it started to flow. So, so much so that he even missed it a little bit, he said, when he came out. <laughs> <laughs> it was a beautiful mental routine. Incredible. So, I mean, we're so resilient and Incredible that you know this agenda, this and, and leaning more towards it shouldn't be a scary thought. Mm. Because even if things go a little bit wayward, they're uh, you know many more resilient. Beautiful. Let's all say how wonderful. Oh, how wonderful. It's so true. In India, we have this phrase. Some of you heard this. I'll say it in Hindi first, and I'll translate. So please say with me: Man chahi ho to acha, na ho to aur bhi acha. Which means if you get what you want, that's good. If you don't want get what you want, that's even better. <laughs> and that is like trusting that something better is going to happen. Better than I expected is going to happen. 
Now that's a real great way of, like you said, you lean into that uncertainty instead of resisting it. Why do you assume that something bad will happen? Something good can happen. I just had met one of our friends, uh, one of our Rigpa friends the other day, yesterday. And he was telling me th the one thing that really touched him the most is this phrase, pronoia. It's the opposite of paranoia. Paranoia is the dread that what's going to happen, what's going to happen, right? The, the deep fear of what's going to happen. And pronoia is, I love the definition of pronoia, please say it with me. The unwavering faith, the unwavering faith and, confidence and confidence that the whole universe, the whole universe is conspiring on my behalf. <laughs> so instead of being paranoid, you become pronoid. You know, everything is conspiring on my behalf. Everything is here to support me. Everything is here to help me. Even if it doesn't look like it on the surface. And if you think like that, then that's typically how you experience it. What the thinker thinks, the prover proves. What the thinker thinks, the prover proves. It's a, I'd like to relate an anecdote I heard yeah. on YouTube. There's a person by the name Krishna Das. I don't know if other people have heard of him. The singer, right? Yeah, the singer. Mm. Yeah, Krishna, Krishna Das. Das. Krishna Das. He's an American guy. And I think he must, he has a thing called Hanuman. Hanuman Cafe. Hanuman Cafe. Okay, I don't know that. Um, there are lots of interesting discussions that other people have, one-on-one -on -one discussions with him at a, at a cafe. And one such incident is him narrating, him going, his going to a Buddhist monastery, uh, where they basically lock you up and you have to meditate the whole day. He said, generally, he doesn't do stuff like that, but somehow someone convinced him to do that. So he went. And every day, at a certain appointed time, you go to the, the master, the Buddhist master, and you say something. And he agrees, he nods his head. He doesn't agree, he doesn't do anything. Apparently, for eight consecutive days, he said, life is just one. Master doesn't then one whole day of again of meditation in the closed cell, much like what we're talking about. Second day happened, he says, There is no creator. I am the creator. He does still the master doesn't move. Third day happens, fourth day happens, fifth day, sixth day, and I think something like eighth day or ninth day, sees the master and and he says, I don't know. <laughs> so good. <laughs> he said he really didn't care whether the master nodded or not. Exactly. That, I thought he's going to say, "I don't need your approval." I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. Uh, he, he'd give it up. I love it. <laughs> Have you heard of something called the Esalen Institute? Esalen Institute is in California. And it was one of those, uh, when you had this whole human potential movement happening in the US, that we can do anything, achieve anything. So anyway, it's still, it's still there. Michael Murphy started it. And uh, they were having a conference uh, in which many people had come. I think many hundreds of people had come. Very big conference, five, six day conference. And as part of this conference, they had a two hour session. And uh, the speaker comes in. And he asks everyone, please stand up and stand on the perimeter of the room. Basically, he's going 
walk, stand at the edge of the room. Everyone stands up and stands at the edge of the room. And he starts pacing up and down in the middle of the room. Doing this, and people are wondering what's, he, what, what's going on, what's this about. So after about two, three minutes, he says, uh, in case you're, just to let you know, I'm just deciding what I'm going to do with you for the next two hours. <laughs> and he's walking up and down in the middle of the room. He says, I've come here with no plan. And they're like, what? We're two hours a session and you, you just you have no plan? And then suddenly he snaps his fingers. He says, I know what. We're going to make a musical instrument. <laughs> like, what? He said, go around the campus, get anything that you can find that can make some kind of sound. Right? And then he says, we, we'll also need some percussion. So get, we have to find a way to make a drum, or make drums, rather. So for the next one hour, they're finding all of these different things that can make a sound. And everyone scatters around. They all come back with different things. And some of them also make these drums. And then he trains, for the next half an hour, he trains them in different rhythms. And for the last half an hour, they make the most incredible music. And at the end of the whole program, they were asked, what was your favorite session? And for most of them, it was that two-hour session. And this man had absolutely no idea what he was going to do with them. He was walking up and down the middle of the room. I'm waiting for inspiration. I don't know, I don't know yet <laughs> what I'm going to do. <laughs> That's an example of, you know, trusting, letting go, right? I'm forgetting the author's name. Uh, he's an expert, he's a scientist who's an expert on light. And he gives an example in his book of, uh, he was walking up to make a presentation and he had all these index cards, you know, with notes of what he's going to be talking about. And as they were announcing his, you know, somebody usually introduces you, so they're introducing you to the audience. And as they're introducing him, a thought occurs to him that he has, pre he has prepared almost every sentence on a topic that he's considered to be a world expert in. And he realizes that this is not the only thing. He lives his whole life like this. He lives his whole life over-preparing. And in that moment, the realization is so hard that his hands loosen and his deck of cards spills on the floor. And he leaves them there, and he goes and stands on the podium. And he just shares his current insight with the audience. He says, I just realized I had prepared every sentence of a speech I'm supposed to be an expert in. So I'm not going to give that speech. I'm going to give a different speech. <laughs> and the whole audience takes a deep breath. Everyone take a deep breath. <sighs> They're so relieved. <laughs> they don't have to listen to that kind of a speech. So what I got from that is, let's say together, it takes infinite preparation to be who I'm not. It takes no preparation to be who I am. And he allowed himself to be who he is. And he said that speech was supposed to be a one-hour speech. But people didn't want to get up. They had questions after that. It almost became a two-hour speech. And nobody wanted to leave. And that, that one day changed his life. He allowed himself to step into the unknown and speak from the heart instead of speaking from the head. When you speak from the heart, you touch people's heart. When you speak from the head, you only touch heads. And of course, heads have got opinions. <laughs> so they may or may not like what you have to offer. Puneet, would you like to share something? 
what's alive in you? Expansive. It really was expansive. If those of you haven't seen the talk, uh, Abhishek shared the talk with me, and it it was an hour, a little less than an hour long talk. And I went into the talk saying, "Yeah, I know what he's going to say," but I was actually surprised. I didn't know what he was going to say. It was actually very different from what I expected. So, if you haven't seen, many of you may have seen clips, but I don't think it does justice to the whole talk. It was one of the very well delivered talks. So, if you have time, and I know some of you may not like Amazon and this and that. Although secretly you might still be ordering from Amazon, <laughs> <laughs> so just watch. It's a good. It's a really good talk. It's worth worth seeing. So your option is Walmart or Sam's Club or something. <laughs> <laughs> Costco. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. You had some notes in your book. You'd come a year back. And you said you got the same notebook along. Would you like to share some of the insights that stayed with you? There's quite a few. Um, I can share some and then yeah, share, share some. Yeah. Um, but the one thing I want to mention is the you know, that example of the Chinese farmer keeps coming to my mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. I've shared it with a lot of people, my family, and shared it with you, and mm. keep reminding myself that story of the Chinese farmer. Why don't you tell everyone the story? I don't think people know the story. So. Um, there's this, uh, I don't know how I accurately remember it. Uh, there's this Chinese farmer who, uh, who lives on a farm with a son uh, and a horse on the farm. Um, and one fine day, that horse wanders into the forest and gets lost and doesn't come back. So all the friends and neighbors, uh, you know, they gather around and they come to the farmer and say, oh my goodness, it's so, so harsh, you know, it's so bad for you. You know, you lost your horse. What are, what are you going to do now? Uh, and you know, it, it's it's so bad for you. And the and the farmer says, maybe. That's right. Um, so people are thinking, that, what does maybe mean? And then they go away. And a few days later, uh, the horse comes back, along with three or four other horses from the forest. <laughs> And they all, you know, like to be together, and they just stay on on the farm. And then, you know, he, now he has four or five horses. <laughs> and so all the friends and neighbors, and they all gather together and are, you know, rejoice. And oh my goodness, it's so good for you. You, you have four or five horses now. It, it, it's so good, right? Uh, and the farmer said, maybe. <laughs> so 
people are you know just thinking, well, what does maybe mean? It is good, right? Like you have five horses now. Um, so then they go away. A few days later, the uh, farmer's son is riding one of the wild horses, and uh, the, the wild horse really goes wild, and the son falls and breaks his leg. And he's in, you know, in, in a lot of pain, and then everyone gathers around again. Oh my God, it's so, uh, so bad for you. Your son has a broken leg, and poor guy is in so much pain. I was going to do your work and all of that. Uh, so bad, right? And the farmer says, maybe. <laughs> that makes everyone really upset. It's like this, this person just doesn't understand what's good, what's good and what's bad. We come here to tell him, and he just says, maybe. And then, again, a few days later, uh, there's a war, and the uh, uh, military people come to draft all the young people to the army. Uh, and they're about to take his son, and then someone notices, oh, he has a broken leg. We can't draft him. And so you know, he doesn't have to go to the war, and he's not in danger anymore. Uh, and so everyone gathers again and says, wow, that is so awesome. It's great that your son had a broken leg. <laughs> Because now he doesn't have to go to war, um, right? It was so good that he broke his leg. And the farmer is like, maybe. <laughs> Beautiful. So the, I think what I understood from that is like, we, a lot of times, or most of the times, we, or maybe all the time, we do not see the entire truth. We see a small part of the truth, and we believe that that is everything. Yeah. And so we, um, we get upset, we get sad, we get painful, but. When, you know, if we were able to see the whole truth, then the whole universe is actually conspiring on our behalf. On our behalf. Beautiful. Let's all say, how wonderful. Oh, wow. Great story. Good, you remember it perfectly. <laughs> I repeated it many times. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it recently and I think you got it like I half expected them. I thought you got it perfectly. You said, yeah, maybe. <laughs> 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 no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that story is one of those things that resonates pretty much with everyone who ever watches it. True. The point that I've shared it with some of my friends. Yes. And then other, like, not such close friends, like a month later, will be like, oh, you have to watch this. And then I'll click it and I'll be like, and then I'll suddenly realize that, oh, it went from me to them to them. <laughs> and now it's coming back right. to me. Which is great because then I get to watch it again. <laughs> it resonates. I don't think yeah. I've Very nice. Anything else you want to share from your learnings? I'm sure that we all have kind of similar stories, right? Like mm. the, the thing, you know, it's seemingly bad happened, yeah. then, you know, you wait a month and all of a sudden, oh, that's actually better. Exactly, that's great. That's exactly right. Pronoia. The other thing that I have shared, you know, I keep reminding myself and I share with uh, the people is also the bowl of light. 
mm-hmm. the attention. Mm-hmm. Like imagine that there's complete darkness everywhere, and yeah. there's a you have a bowl of light. Wherever mm-hmm. you take the bowl of light is 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 what you see, yeah. and it expands. Right? And so uh, we, if we are aware, then we know where we are putting that bowl of light. Bowl of light, yes. Yeah, so what you're saying is awareness or mindfulness is like that ball of light. And whatever you focus on, that's what fills your attention. So if I was to ask all of you, what is the most painful experience of your life? The ball will go somewhere. And if I ask you what most inspires you, the ball will go somewhere else. Right? And each time it will illuminate and that will fill our awareness. What we focus on expands. What we focus on expands. Right. Um, And I... I have a practical example for that as well. Yeah. That I used. I um, I have about 60, 70 people here in New York, and then I'm hiring at different, you know, building teams in different places as well. And there was this uneasiness feeling within this team here is that oh, a lot of the uh, you know senior people are in another location and decisions are made there, and then there was a little ill feeling. And then when I did an all hands meeting um, uh, as an icebreaker, what what we used is say your name, how long you've been here. And what has been the most exciting moment of your current job? And we went around the room and 50, 60 people talked about the most exciting time they've had so far in this job. And suddenly there was such a lot of positive energy that we didn't have to like address any of the questions. We didn't have to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> we suddenly just very positive. Because they only thought about, when did I have the most fun here? Rather than, you know, this is the complaint that Exactly. Beautiful. How wonderful. That's a great example. In fact, when I did my MBA, this was, that was about the time this came out, a process called appreciative inquiry. Appreciative inquiry is a little different from our usual method. Our usual method is problem solving. What's wrong? How do we fix it? But appreciative inquiry, let's focus on what's right and let's accentuate it. It's very similar to what you did, right? And I was so impressed with that idea. It's a really powerful idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Except that they didn't incorporate. Incorporate. <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like it was yeah. a really good, you know. So I've, I've seen that yeah. presentation done by some, you know, one of the practitioners. It's great. Yes. What what I noted is also what you focus on becomes your experience, and you mm. become expert at it. Yeah. So if you um, focus on a problem, or if you focus on complaining, you become an expert at complaining. <laughs> and if you always think about how do I solve this problem, then you become an expert at solving that problem. Yes, I love that. You're saying nothing, Nadia? Yeah. Deep breath. Well, I, <laughs> I have to like actually put these Yeah, my teacher used to say you can't really teach anyone, you can just show up, you yeah. can just practice it. It sounds like he's teaching you more than you're teaching him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead, what are you saying? Yeah. Uh, a couple more things that um, keep reminding myself. 
one is uh, I am the screen on which the movie of my life is being projected. Hmm. So whatever ha- keeps happening in my life hmm. doesn't affect the, sc- the screen. Beautiful. So just stay with that thought for a moment, that I am the screen on which the movie of this life is being projected. Just see how that thought impacts you. can even go one step further. I am the screen on which this entire universe is projected. And one more question for all of you and me. The question is, what is the distance between the movie and the screen? Let's take a nice deep breath. So for the same workshop last year, uh, Vikram had also come. And Vikram had come with me for a five or six day retreat in Bali. And Vikram, often when he calls me, he tells me that one simple thing he learned there had a very big impact on him. Vikram been meditating for many, many years. And the statement that I am not, I am not a person, I am the space within which everything happens. That simple statement had a big impact on him. So I'm not the meditator. I am the space within which everything happens. Life happens, meditation happens, everything. Very similar to what you're saying, the screen, right? So it's the shift from being a person to being a presence. And notice the space in this room is agenda-less. It doesn't agree with some of us, disagree with some of us. It doesn't like what we say, dislike what we say. It doesn't have preferences. It just receives, all right? So the space is agenda-less. The space just receives, just is. We could talk about you know, serving humanity here, we could talk about, you know, starting a war among people over here. And the space just is. It neither likes nor dislikes. It just is. It's present. So what is it like to be like space? What is it like to be like that screen? Different kind of movies can be projected on the screen. But the screen just is. The screen is not even slightly affected by any one of those movies. The space is not even slightly affected. It just is. It is timeless. It is free at all times. So what we just did right now, thanks to you, is we got that ball of light, the ball of our attention, onto this aspect of our experience, which is agendaless. 
which just is, neither coming nor going, right? So this is actually really important for sanity. Otherwise, you're constantly reacting. <laughs> you're constantly in a state of self-preservation. What do I do? What do I do now? What do I do now? Right? You're constantly dodging bullets from all directions. You're constantly overthinking. What's next? What's next? You're always in danger. So for some sanity, it's required for us to just be. Let it be. All is well. Everything will happen the way it's meant to happen. constantly to sometimes to sort of flick myself out of mm. a rut that I'm in. Insanity is believing all your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. That's very powerful actually to get you off certain thought patterns. The other is emotions are real but need not be true. Mm. First one helps me get off of a thought process. Mm -hmm. Second one helps me get off of an emotional roller coaster. Beautiful. And there's another one that I like from a teacher called Adya Shanti. He says, "No thought is no thought is true. No thought is true, but some thoughts are truer than others." <laughs> <laughs> Every thought is an approximation, right? No map is the terrain. That's what he means. When you say no thought is true, it means no map is the terrain. No concept is a reality. But some maps are better than other maps, right? So some thoughts are truer than others. So that again kind of relaxes it. So yeah, we can use thoughts, but let's not become so addicted to our thinking that we lose our way. You made us say thinking is not required yeah. <laughs> so yeah. sometimes I, I use that as well. Like when I don't need to think, I just I just say within yeah. myself. Yeah. Thinking is not thinking required. Is not required. So. Thinking is not required right now. Yes. That's a good one to remind. You know, thinking is required, but not every single moment. Not yeah. not, not, not right now. In this in this moment, when you're you know having a shower, thinking may not be required. Maybe only soaping is required. <laughs> right. When shaving, you don't have to think so much. When shaving, just shave. You know. When walking, just walk. When eating, just eat. You don't have to think every single moment. And then the chances are when you will think, you'll think with a lot of clarity. Because you haven't dissipated your energy so much. I'll give you an example. I was uh, doing a program for a company, and we were learning a skill called dialogue. Dialogue is, it is not a discussion, it is not a debate. It is a willingness to listen deeply to everybody and speak authentically. Right? So we used a tool in the dialogue, which is a called a talking stick or a talking object. The person who has it is the only one who can speak. It comes from the Native Americans. Actually, in America, it's a, it's a thing that you find in this country. The Native Americans would have a talking object or a talking stick. And the person who had it, everybody would listen very intently to them. And until they passed it on or gave it to the center of the room, of the, of the circle, uh, you couldn't speak. You were forced to listen, literally. So the CEO of the company was in that, in that session. And we had, I think we had three rounds of practice. So he is quite a domineering personality. So normally when he starts speaking, everybody just listens. <laughs> so we had three rounds. Each round was about 20 minutes long. The first round, he spoke for 15 of those 20 minutes. <laughs> Other people only got five minutes. The next round, then I, we did some debrief and we you know, exchanged notes. A second round, he spoke for about 10 minutes, about half the time. 
in the third round he was mostly listening and right at the end someone urged him but you haven't said anything <laughs> and they literally had to force him to take the stick and then he spoke for the last one or two minutes and then when he shared his experience he said i've had a very big learning today i realized that when i'm speaking i'm not learning anything but when i'm listening i'm getting so much so today i realized what a poor listener i am and today i have allowed myself to really listen to people even the one that disagreed with even the one that didn't like what they had to say i still allowed myself to listen to them and understand how they're saying why they're saying what they're saying at the end of it my thoughts became so clear and i loved what i had to say at the end i was able to integrate what everybody had said and i was also able to give my point of view in other words because he wasn't constantly thinking of what he wanted to say what when he did speak it was a higher quality what he had to offer so thinking is not required right now and then when it is required it will be there it will be available to you some of the biggest inventions by the way and discoveries have happened not in the moment of thinking they've happened when the person stepped away from what they were doing and went to maybe get a cup of tea <laughs> or when they were driving their car you know this is because we have different parts of our brain it's not always when you're like this that you get the biggest insights sometimes when you're like this your hands open up i'm showing i'm saying that for the people who are listening on this recording so it's you can be intent like this it is like a focused state of mind or it can be an open state of mind and both have their place so like nadia was saying that she has you know uh, uh, she left work and she's with her kids and it's opening up a different dimension so there's a lady who's written a book recently it's called bored and brilliant and similar very highly accomplished high performing and then she had a child and then there were some complications and things and she couldn't go back to work and she was so bored and yet in that boredom she would get clarity like she never got before she got idea that she never got before so you wrote this amazing book based on all kinds of scientific research as well how we are not bored enough these days <laughs> we are too much we are too too much we got too much entertainment we've got too many things on our attention there was this entire article about similar thing about letting your kids get bored yes let them get bored because kids who don't get bored are not that creative and they they get too they get very anxious very quickly right so there was a tv report where this uh, lady was saying when my when i go to my mother saying i'm bored my mother would say you're not bored you're boring <laughs> you have to just go and find something else to do <laughs> in india those of us who grew up in india we know that uh, back in the day there was we would often have power cuts in india almost every day and some days longer power cuts and when you have a power, either there are not too many tv channels nothing and on top of that there's a power cut so now what do you do you know then you have to find ways to entertain yourself you have to find ways you have to come up with creative ideas you got to sing a song you got to tell a story you got to do something right antakshari which is one of the indian game that you all sing songs one after the other right i didn't get your your name maria what is your name Yeah, Maria. Can you share? You're a school teacher. Can you share some of your learnings with working with children? Learning. Some of your insights, learning, because you—it's not—it's a whole different uh, part of the population. Many of us don't have much insight in that. Like we're doing a disservice to them when you're like always 
Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah, and also like, you know, it's just like how important it is for kids to like play and be outside and like, I have this kid that he's had like all the learning disabilities that one can think of and like the day we went to Central Park, he was super well behaved, you know, and it's like, it's just like we just need like more simple things. Lovely, that's beautiful. How wonderful. Great insights. That actually reminds me of, uh, uh, I, I was thinking of sharing this uh, around agenda-less, uh, you know, taking that time out. And as many of you know, uh, if you are Indian, but if you are not, there is only one responsibility an Indian person has is to basically grow better kids. I have taken it maybe too serious. So I was having this like we moved to Seattle, we were living in an apartment, we were looking for a house. So every search was around better schools and ratings and, and all the good stuff that Indian parents, you know, spend their life on. And uh, we, we got in a good area, uh, a little bit outside of, uh, you know, uh, our uh, calculator was saying, we still got in uh, best school. We were so happy as parents. Uh, we actually got in a school that had Quest program and, and all the stuff. Fast forward a year and a half or two years into it, my son comes home with a grade uh, five Bs. And we, I, I felt something's not working, you know. And, and it was not final exam, so it was just a, uh, I would call it leading indicator of failure. Uh, so I had some time to improve, uh, and I. <laughs> so I, 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 we, my wife and I, we actually had like six months before this happened, a lot of tension in the house. Like, how can we improve? You know, and, and all the things go with it. And uh, actually, in that moment, I, I had this epiphany, and I recently started meditation, uh, vipassana, and all that. So it kind of gave me some courage to do this, and I was like. Well, let's just take a step back, you know, like we tried everything in the last two years to do something for this person and it's not working. So I started this regime of once a month, I'll go on a date night with both kids, one hour, two hour. We go on a dinner, there's no agenda because usually my interaction with kids or even mom's interaction is always like get up all the way to go to bed. Like it's a series of <laughs> micro instructions and micromanagement is something Indian parents really love to do. They feel like they're obliged to do that. And I'm talking about myself. So we were doing that and that one hour I got so much insight and I was literally doing nothing. Just literally taking them, getting them ready and say, which restaurant do you want to go? Like, or, or what do you want to do? You have two hours unlimited possibilities, you name it, we are doing it, you know. So we'll go to this restaurant, we'll talk about it, and they will share mundane things that was so important to them. And that actually got back. Now this student is in all honors class, getting five A's, maybe a couple of, you know, areas that he's still improving and still so micromanaging. <laughs> but I think that, that one year that I had like totally revitalized uh, my relationship yeah. with my kids. Yeah. Mom is still struggling, but she is supporting. Uh, but but actually, agendaless, uh, as you put it, uh, I have seen a, a version of it in a, in a great effect. You know, it improves a lot of things around. That's powerful. How wonderful! How wonderful. 
What a beautiful example. Actually, mm. I have twins and uh, they're five and a half. And I see a lot of resistance when I have an agenda. Mm. When I am with the flow mm. as to just observing and you know playing with them or mm. being the three things that you said, uh, I feel like it's just easy mm. and uh, things just go on as they are supposed to more easily as mm. opposed to mm. just having resistance constantly. So. Beautiful. How wonderful. Oh. What are those three things she's reminding us of? Don't look at your notes. <laughs> not knowing, bearing witness, and loving actions. Not knowing, bearing witness, loving actions. There's something called the law of five. We have to hear things five times before we remember them. So you've got to say it again and again and again. And that's one of the reasons I make people say things aloud. Because when they hear me, then they hear themselves. <laughs> then they ask a question, and then before you know it, you said it five times. Because we imagine people just get it the first time, but no, you've got to listen to it again and again and again. And I just said it five times. <laughs> so we'll have a few minutes of silence. Just be with yourself. Enjoy being with yourself.
and we'll continue this meditation into a collaborative meditation. I'll give three examples and I'll open it up to the group. We'll use a sentence. I'm releasing the expectation of or it could be I'm releasing the agenda to give a few examples I'm releasing the expectation that I should or we should feel a certain way I'm releasing the agenda that we should leave this place with a big insight or a big takeaway. I'm releasing and relaxing the agenda that I might unconsciously have. And anybody in the group can say aloud, I'm releasing the expectation or I'm relaxing the expectation or agenda. And fill in the blanks. We'll pause for two or three breaths. We'll feel what you've just said. Make sure you pause between each person. Anyone can go. I'm releasing the expectation that I am owed anything by anyone. expectation that complexity and over planning is better than simplicity and spontaneity.
In this moment, I'm releasing and relaxing all the cultural expectations, cultural norms, societal norms that I have unquestioning, unquestioningly accepted. Just relaxing all of them. One more, anyone? That you control timing, is that what you said? I'll take a nice deep breath. 
If you like, you can rub your palms together, make them nice and long. Bring them over your eyes. And let's say together, how wonderful. So there's a nice story I'm remembering of this man who was very pure-hearted, extremely pure-hearted. And all the angels were very inspired by this man. He's the most pure-hearted person we've ever seen. And they kept, uh, they kept waiting for him. That the moment he makes a wish, we would love to fulfill that wish. But he was so pure-hearted, he never had any wish. He was just living his life very simply. So they kept on waiting, you know, let him make a wish. Let him. They'd even come in his dreams and say, make a wish. And he would never make a wish. Very contented. So the story goes that the, all these angels go to God and say, God, you know, we want to do something for this person. But he never makes a wish. We don't know what to do for him. So God says, well, I have a solution for you. You, you grant him this wish that he does a lot of good, but he never gets to know of it. <laughs> that wherever he goes, amazing things happen, miracles happen, but he never gets to know of it. So the angels are very happy and they give him this wish. And so wherever he goes, whichever town, whichever village, he's just living unassuming, he's just going about his business, meeting people, talking to people, moving on. But he never realizes behind him, miracle after miracle is happening. Healings are happening. Family that were you know, having conflicts, are, they're having resolution. You know, entire you know, cities, people are getting benefited. But he never gets to know about it. So he can continue living as unassumingly as ever. <laughs> and yet behind him, miracle after miracle is happening. Somehow that story is something that really touched me. In other words, you don't know what impact, you don't have to know it for you to have an impact. Your impact can still be there. By your very presence, you can have an impact. So you may not realize, even right now, you may not realize, you know, they have what's called the wake of a ship or a boat, the ripples that spread behind it. The captain looking ahead can't see that, but the ripples go all the way to the, to the shoreline. So, you know, in Persia, they're famous for making carpets in Persia, you may know this. Persian carpets are some of the most, you know, exquisite. And in carpets, there are many kinds of thread that are used, many colors of thread that are used. And if you're making a carpet, you're so up close, you may not realize it, but as you step back, you see the whole pattern. It's like, my God, this is gorgeous. So there are all kinds of threads in that carpet. Some of the threads will be black, some will be white, some will be red, some will be green. But you know, even that black thread is playing its part. Even the green thread is playing, playing its part. Each one of us, we like a thread in the fabric of life. And we are all playing our part to create this beautiful tapestry. <laughs> so we don't have to always know or fully understand our role. But we play our role nevertheless. We do our bit. I feel like reading, I have to find this. It's, there's a poem by Mary Oliver on a topic that's like this. Let me see if I can find it. These days I call the internet an extension of my brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is like that. Let me just see if I can find this.
Yeah, so this poem is called The Journey. All right, listen to this. One day, you finally knew what you had to do. One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life. Each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough. And a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voice behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world determined to do the only thing you could do determined to save the only life you could save so this is a poem by Mary Oliver called The Journey. And uh, so it, it starts off with, one day you finally knew what you had to do <laughs> and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. That sooner or later, an inner knowing comes and says, okay, now I need to do this, whatever it is. You know. I have ignored this voice long enough. I need to do this. The moment you start doing this, immediately you'll feel resistance because your choosing to stand up is going to create ripples all around you. <laughs> And people who are used to having you behave a certain way, listen in a certain way, do certain things a certain way, it's going to upset them, right? It's going to, it's going to create a certain, um, you know, vibration. It's going to create a certain unsettledness. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each, life cry, each voice cried. So the whole expectation that, you know, what were you saying, uh, you know, Anicca, that I, what, the, what did you say, that I don't want to, uh, I'm relieving the expectation, yeah, nobody owes me anything. And I also don't owe anybody anything. And yes, we'll do things for each other, but not because we owe it to each other. <laughs> That's an extra layer that we're adding, right? We're each here to live our own truth. Let's be true to ourselves. That's probably the, the one thing you owe to yourself is to be true to yourself. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundation, though the melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. This is like, you know, leaving home at 2 a.m. in a stormy night. And that's how it feels. When you're getting out of your familiar comfort zone, that's what it feels like. You're stepping out, it's unknown, it's a, there's, a, there's a storm outside, and still you kept going. And the road is full of fallen branches and stones. And though the melancholy is terrible, you keep going, and as you left those voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. A new map emerges. A new clarity emerges. A new direction emerges. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized. 
as your own voice. <laughs> All this time you were listening to voices over your shoulder, parents and ancestors and culture and this and that and your teachers. But now for the first time you began to hear your own voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company. And some may say, oh, but this is all selfish. This is, you're just doing whatever you want. But look at what she says. As you strode deeper and deeper into the world, not away from the world, you're leaning into the world, but you're leaning it now following your inner guidance. Not the shoulds and shouldn'ts, but your inner compass. Determined to do the only thing you could do. What if there's only one thing that we only could? There's a lovely question, and I should look it up, the exact question. But basically what this coach says is, what is the one thing that you would, you would gladly do for the rest of your life, that you would never get bored of? We all have to find that one thing that we could gladly do again and again and again, and develop again and again, deeper and deeper and deeper, and that we would never tire of. And we all have that one thing. So she's saying, determined to do the only thing you could do. Determined to save the only life you could save. <laughs> Anybody wants to say something? Somebody should tell a joke. You all become very serious. <laughs> tell me. Oh, really? Oh. Well, mostly because, you know, in India, you have to recite stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Sure uh. And it's called leisure. And it's like, oh. Uh, and it's funny because when I was a kid, I was a kid, but I at least remember the first part. Okay, tell us, tell us. What is this? to something as beauty, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I lose it as I go on, but it's, it's a very famous English... Uh, Let me look it up. Leisure, leisure. It's poem. called Leisure. Let's find it. Leisure is by W.H. Davies. Davies. Yeah, I think that's him. Yeah, this is the one. I found it. Okay, let's do this. What is this life, if full of care, we have no time to stand and stare? No time to stand beneath the boughs and stare as long as sheep and cows. <laughs> no time to see when woods we pass, where squirrels hide their nuts in grass. No time to see in broad daylight streams full of stars like skies at night. No time to turn at beauty's glance and watch her feet, how they can dance. No time to wait till her mouth can enrich that smile her eyes began. A poor life, this if, full of care, we have no time to stand and stare. Lovely. I don't think I've ever Yes, Almost incredible. 30 something years. Well, forgotten most of them. Mm. 
We should we should all memorize the first two lines. Let's say it together. What is this life? If full of care, we have no time. What what is this life if full of care? We have no time to stand and stare. Running, running, running all the time. <laughs> then what is it? You know? The Thich Han, one of the great teachers, he has somebody asked him for rules for living, and he gave these three beautiful rules. Let's say together: go slow, go slow. do less, do less. breathe. <laughs> these are the three rules for life: go slow, do less, and breathe. <laughs> he said, "You will enjoy your life." <laughs> share something you're sitting in a chair just like mine you have to say something quite at the beginning when you asked us to think about something that I wanted to dedicate yeah I didn't get it, but it, you know, now I remember the right order of things. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't follow it. 
Um, but I look back and I realize this is the fourth time in my that when you ask us to do this thing, that was the last time in my life oh. in which I, I had nothing to do with an agenda. From that point on, this is how an agenda was introduced to me in my life. <laughs> by the order of things, by my mom, sitting by the Red Sea, very, very early in the morning of, in a week of camping. And um, there's nothing right in that agenda. That specific agenda she gave me. Mm. Um, I can go back to each and every step of the way and very clearly question each one of them. Why is that so? Why is it necessary? Um, and questioning it even how, where I come from, it's trivial and obvious that after high school you go to the military. And people do that maybe because they never bother to question that. Uh, I think there's only one other Israeli here, so I think for the rest of you, it may be completely crazy, the thought of having to graduate high school and go to the military. Um, but my mom was sitting next to her little girl and told her about the facts of life as she sees it. And um, without noticing, kind of passed on probably should be questioned mm. quite heavily. And I wonder about each and every one of the other steps. And mostly I wonder why when you asked us to uh, think about what, what were the instructions? Um, think of a time in which you were agenda mm -hmm. I did not follow uh, orders or instructions. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where my mind took me to that very clear visual visualization of that moment Mm. Beautiful. So you're saying that you did all this camping. First, you left, and when you said you did camping and it was every year for many years and it was agendaless, I was like, wow, don't even know how to relate to that because we're Indian, right? Like, we must have been doing something. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. How wonderful. Yeah. So I want to say, uh, share these three things that came to me the other day. Uh, uh, the three words actually. Just say with me. Receive. Receive. Respond. Respond. Release. Release. And I'll explain all three. So receive is the experience you're having, right? So whatever's going on in your life, the experience you're having. You can either receive it or you can resist it. So I invite you to receive it. Why? Because it's already there. Your res resisting is not going to change it. It is the people in your house, their mood, the job that you have, what's going on in your industry, what's going on in your life. That's there. What I'm seeing right now, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, it's here. Resisting, it doesn't change. It just creates suffering inside of me. Suffering increases as resistance increases. So instead of res resisting it, receive it. You can receive it with acceptance. You can receive it the next level. You can receive it with gratitude. Today we learned a nice new word. What's the opposite of paranoia we learned? It is pronoia. You can receive it with pronoia. You may not even like it, but you say, you know what? I trust something good's going to come out of this. This or something better will happen. So pronoia. So receive means, can I release the resistance? And this is similar to what you were talking about, that, that meeting that you had where you asked the question, tell us your name, 
tell us where you're working, what, what work you have, and now tell us what was the most enjoyable moment. Isn't that, isn't that the question? The most enjoyable moment of the, your entire time working here. And that changed the entire energy. Right? And so what you focus on expands. So in any situation, I can choose to focus on what's wrong and what's missing, or I can choose to focus on what's there and what's possible. Right? So receiving with acceptance, receiving with gratitude, and then you can add more words like receiving with love, receiving with joy. Any other words coming? How can we receive skillfully? What attitude? Give me some good attitudes to receive. Agenda. Agenda, okay, very nice. Receiving without an agenda. What else? Judgment. Without judgment, yeah. Without judging, without heavy preferences and judgment. Receiving with humility. One of my teachers had a very nice example of humility. He says, a tree with no fruits stands very stiff and tall. A tree with many fruits bends low. And he told this to me at a time when he was being accused by many people of something he hadn't done. And I was like, why don't you stand up for yourself? He was like, it's all right. This is also a phase. And he gave me this example. People who stand very stiff and tall, they've got very fruit, fruit, fruits. Though they've got many fruits, they're willing to bend. All right. You're willing to be humble. So even that unfair judgment, he was receiving it with a lot of humility. So receive with humility. Receive without resistance. All right? So, and I'm, and I'm going to anchor this idea of receiving in the in-breath. So let's all take a deep in-breath. Two more times. Slow deep. Very nice. So the first one I want to share is receive. And how, receive as opposed to resist. Right? Can I receive? Can I embrace? Can I accept? Can I welcome? What's the second one you said? There was receive, there's respond. respond, right? So you receive, now how are you going to respond? Now respond as opposed to react, right? React is again, when you, when you resist, you're going to react. But when you receive, you can now respond. And you can sense in this situation what is really required. And for this, you've got to access again the agenda-less space. Another, another word for agenda-lessness is the gap. It's the pause. Between stimulus and response is a gap. It's the pause. That's where our wisdom lives. So again, receive. And now check what is needed. In this moment, what is needed. <coughs> now you can respond in, again, so many different ways. But the, 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 the basic difference between a response and a reaction is, at the basis of a reaction is some kind of, the word you use, judgment. Is some kind of resistance. Is some kind of dislike. Some kind of fear or anger. Some kind of contraction. At the basis of a response is presence, is care, is love, is wisdom, right? Is again agendalessness. So what are the what are the what is the basis of it? Just because you're taking hard action doesn't mean it's a reaction. Sometimes that's the only way out. You have to take a hard action. Sometimes the coach will shout at their players. And that may be just the right respo response at that time. That's what they need to hear. They need to hear a strong, you know few strong words to get back into shape. That can happen sometimes. So respond. So respond, and, and the main thing with response is you ask yourself, what's, what do I bring to this situation? When you focus on what can I get from this situation, chances are it's going to become a reaction. But when you ask yourself, what can I bring to this situation, chances are it will become a response. All right? 
and you can bring, you have so many gifts. You can be a listener, you can ask good questions, you can be creative, uh, you can bring some humor to the situation, you can bring some patience to the situation, you can bring some understanding to the situation, you can bring so many things to the situation. You can go to that poem, you can stand and stare. <laughs> you can slow down. Not to be in such a big rush, right? So this represents the out-breath. So there's the in-breath, which is receive, and there's the out-breath, which is respond. So in the out-breath, what is it like to... I just, I'm just coming from, you know, before this, I got a little late coming. I'd gone to meet a friend of mine, and she teaches a method called Jinshin. Jinshin. Uh, she's actually... Jinshin Jutsu, and, and you know, her book is called The Art of Jinshin. In fact, you can take it's just, uh, she's just recently written it. And uh, she was giving me a session of Jinshin, and there were times when she was working on my head, and she was close enough that behind me that when she would breathe out, I could feel her outbreath. And I actually found her outbreath also very healing. Just the outbreath caressing my hair, I found even the outbreath was very healing. So I'm talking about the outbreath. So this anyway, her thing is here. If you want to know about her work, her name is Alexis Brink, and she's just written a new book on this Japanese practice called Jinshin Jutsu, or as she calls it, Jinshin. So uh, sharing your gift in each moment, how can I share my gift? How can I show up? How can I share my gifts? So that's respond, right? So receive, respond. And the third one is release. And what do you release? Release all your tightness, release all your expectations, release all your agendas, release all your roles. Once in a while, release your identity also. Don't be, don't be so hung up on your identity. Like if I'm very hung up on being the teacher over here, then I can't learn much. <laughs> but if I can relax that a little bit, chances are I'll learn quite a bit. There's so much to learn from all of you. Right. So can we release our identity? Can we relax? Our, like as a parent, yes, we do have to guide and instruct our children, but once in a while we have to learn from our children. As a teacher as well, once in a while, our teacher, maybe our kids have to teach us something. This friend of mine, she works with kids with, uh, you know, what, what's the uh, euphemism these days, I don't know, special needs or, you know, special, differently abled, I don't know what word they use nowadays. So she works with these differently abled kids and uh, she says, it's amazing, I woke up with a bad mood, no one at home noticed, no one at work noticed, but the moment I entered the classroom, they looked at me and said, what's up, something's wrong. <laughs> And they came and gave me a hug. <laughs> These kids notice. So we're saying, you know, the, oh, they have low IQ, but they're very high EQ, you see. They have a different gift. They may not be able to speak as fancy as we do, or understand fancy concepts as we do, but they, they understand things that are actually more important at some level. They understand the heart. They understand emotion. They can read people in a different way. So release. In that moment, you release your identity of being the teacher, and then get to receive a hug in that moment. So release, 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 release. So receive and respond and release. So receive would be the in-breath, respond would be the out-breath, and release would be the stillness. It would be the space within which there is in-breathing and out-breathing happening. It would be the stillness, the gap between the breaths. It would be something that's timeless. And so these three things came to me. I wanted to share them with all of you. And all of them have a foundation of agendalessness. The stronger your agenda, then instead of receiving, you'll be resisting. The stronger your agenda or expectation, instead of responding, you'll be reacting. All right? The stronger your agenda, instead of releasing, you'll be all stuck, caught up. You'll be all wound up.
Are we feeling complete? Yes. Everyone's gotten so quiet. <laughs> yeah, that's good. We need a stupid question. <laughs> Yeah, in, in, the, in the beginning, you will go between being restless and being sleepy. Restless and sleepy. And then you'll find that beautiful middle ground. You know, when we are awake, we are uh, active. So we are, we, are, uh, we are alert, but we are also restless. right? When we are asleep, we are restful, but we are not alert. When we are dreaming, we are... Again, we are uh, restless, but again, we're not alert. <laughs> so meditation is that fourth state, where you are rested and alert. So you'll only get there by missing it many, many, many times. You'll cross it many, many, many times, and that's all right. It's okay to cross it this way and that way. <coughs> but it's, it's a... No, you... No, you will... Yeah, so this, this would be... You can fall asleep, and that, that's fine. You will fall asleep once in a while. Don't make it a habit to fall asleep every time. Because what you want to come to is a place where you're deeply rested and also completely alert. Alert and rested. Normally when we are alert, we get restless. And we, when we are relaxed, we get asleep. We go, go asleep, <laughs> fall asleep, right? But we're looking for this beautiful middle ground. And so this state is available to us. But it requires a little bit of practice. Yeah? So my teacher, somebody asked him to define meditation. He said it in a very unique way. He said, let's say it together, still, still. flowing water. <laughs> now, what is, what is, we, we know flowing water, and it's full of ripples, and we know still water, and it's right there. But he said, no, it's still flowing water. So it's relaxed at the same time, it's alert at the same time. Relaxed and alert at the same time. And this is, in nowadays, psychology, they also call it flow, state of flow. Oil flowing out of container, yes. It's unbroken, smooth, and yet flowing. I love it. Unbroken, smooth, and yet flowing. That's fantastic. So that's fine. We're going to miss it all the time. It's all, but but, but th that doesn't stop us from you know, re-entering that. And again and again, again and again. It's like the, the Buddha said, a carpenter's tools. New tool he gets, using it, using it, nothing seems to happen. But after a few months and years, his handprint can be found in the tool. Literally, the, the hammer, the, the handle of the hammer will take a shape of his hand. Uh, we are more familiar with our flip-flops. You wear them long enough, then they, <laughs> they get the imprint of your feet. So the truth will leave an imprint on you if you allow yourself again and again, again and again, to just enter that space. For my thing, I would say, am I doing it at night? Is that why you're sleepy? Or it's yeah, if you're doing it just before sleeping because you had a very long day, it could happen. It could happen. It's not necessarily a bad thing. You'll have a better quality of sleep. Oh, you can't wake up. Then you can't wake up. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah, you, you'll find, uh, you already know this, but we ha I have a, uh, a website called, there is a website called SoundCloud. It's like the YouTube of sounds. And uh, I have a lot of guided meditations there. So if you want, just go and check that out. Search for my name, Nitya Shanti, and search for SoundCloud. And you get a playlist of over 100 guided meditations. And you can check out some of them, see, if, see which ones you find useful and supportive. Uh, the simplest one would just be to uh, just to sit and just be with yourself. You don't even need any instructions, actually. Just sit there and be with yourself. And if you get bored, it's okay to get bored. If you get re restless, it's okay to get restless. Allow yourself to feel what you're feeling. Why do we have to resist? Why do we have to always, the idea that I have to feel peaceful at the end? Not necessarily. It's okay. And if you do that, you'll get the maximum benefit, actually. So the highest meditation, actually, is agendaless meditation. The moment you create an agenda that I'm going to repeat this and do this and focus on this, and that, you'll still get some benefits, but the real one would be the one where, or maybe you start, how about you start with a slight agenda, okay, I'll count my breath so many times, or I'll count, say this mantra so many times, or I'll visualize this, but then at some point drop it, right, put it all down, and that would be a good way to approach it. All right, everybody, take a minute, tune in. Just have a sense of gratitude for this evening, everyone who helped make this evening possible. Also to yourself for being here, giving yourself this treat. And I feel like ending this gathering with gratitude. So anyone will say something they're grateful for. Could be anything in their life, doesn't have to be from the session. Something that they appreciate and grateful for. And like this, 10 people will share briefly, one sentence. I'm grateful for my parents for bringing me. Beautiful. <laughs> I'm grateful for Prerna for arranging a nice dinner for us so that we could all eat something before we started. Let's have two people who've not spoken. What are you grateful for?
Why don't we share something? What are you grateful for? Grateful that it's summer. <laughs> <laughs> what are you grateful for? Oh, share, it, share, it. share it again. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. That's great. Yes. Maria, say something. What are you grateful for? Um, I'm grateful for beautiful. Beautiful. Nice. Let's all say, how wonderful. how wonderful. Enjoy the sound of my bowl. Share this nice energy with everybody in your life. Think of your loved ones. I wish all of you a life where you have lots of time to stand and stare. <laughs> all right, everybody, thank you so much. Lovely. Thank you. thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Come, stretch your legs.